0: Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jen Williams, here with Alex Ward, and our returning special guest, Dr. Alina Polyakova. Hello. Hi, thanks for being here. Alina is an expert on far-right movements and European politics at the Brookings Institution. And we asked her here today because we're going to talk about something she knows a lot about, the collapse of centrist politics around the world. A little later in the show, we're going to look at two very different examples of this, one in Brazil and one in Germany. But let's just start with the basics here. What does it mean to be in the center?
1: Well, the center, as we know it today, basically means, at least in the European context, also in the United States, that these are the centrist parties of the left and the right that have supported the buildup of what we call as the international liberal order. They've kept the transatlantic relationship as sort of the bedrock of international stability.
2: Right. So if you think about it for about 70 years or so, that's the kind of, broadly speaking, governance structure we've had, that center-left, center-right parties in throughout Europe, in the U.S., even elsewhere, have kind of kept this, as Alina said, liberal international order going, which really means greater flow of trade, of people, of democratic politics, like a greater linking of these governments and, a, and an alliance structure that has kept this system in place.
0: So that that's for the past 70 years or so. Why, why 70 years?
2: Well, uh, 70 years ago, we had a small little thing called World War II.
0: I vaguely uh, heard of it, I believe. S- s-
2: slight slight disagreement. Um, and what happened is towards the end of that war is something called the Bretton Woods Agreement was put into place. So the United States, which looked like it was about to win, and obviously it did, worked with a bunch of other countries, sat around the table, and came up with a set of global norms and rules to basically say, like, guys, we don't want to do this again. Right? Like, how can we link— ourselves so much that like we that going to war with each other would be counterproductive.
1: Right, and it wasn't just about Bretton Woods. At least in Europe, the the beginning of the European Union as we know it today really started because of the war. In a way, the Germans were terrified of themselves after two world wars that they were responsible for. And they wanted to be interlocked, interlinked with their neighbors to prevent war. And this was the vision that if we have economic interdependence, they were much less likely to want to kill each other.
0: Right. And so, you know, the U.S. is super powerful and agreed, along with pretty much everyone else in Europe, right, to give up some little bit of power in the interest of global cooperation and democratic politics and essentially like laid out these ground rules right like there's going to be a set of rules that we all in the world are going to abide by trade rules rules about war rules about conflict rules about everything and we all agree that like these are the norms that we're going to follow and this is going to be how the world is going to operate and we kind of set those rules right and for 70 years they've pretty much held with Some notable exceptions.
2: Right, because as you pointed out as we were planning this, Jen, like, there was a time where people were like, we don't really enjoy these far-right Nazis, and we don't really like these far-left communists, so can we just kind of keep it in the middle here?
0: And that's where we get back to this idea of centrism, right? It's, you know, we had just fought this massive world war against very, very far-right fascist Nazis uh, and a couple other groups who joined along with them. And then, you know, we also had, after that, coming out, getting into the Cold War, you had the opposite, right? You had this far-left communist kind of system, and also very revolutionary, right? Also shaking up the status quo. And so you had this kind of group of centrist countries and politicians within the country who basically told people, look, we're going to bring you stability. We're just going to keep this kind of moderate, middle-of-the-road plan. We don't want anything crazy on the right. We don't want anything crazy on the left. And so the global kind of system took on this centrist tone. And it, it lasted pretty well for, like you said, about 70 years. After the break, what went wrong? Think of all the things you work hard to provide your family, your home, a college education, your entire lifestyle. But how do you make sure that all of those things are still possible, even if something unexpectedly happens to you? Life insurance used to be a pain. You have to deal with an agent who came across like a used car salesman. It's like, you know, scheduling a blood test at a doctor's office and reading over a bunch of paperwork with fine print and legalese that nobody can understand, including the used car salesman. Now with Ethos, the application only takes 10 minutes online. They have honest, upfront pricing. And there's no doctor's appointment for policies under $1 million. So, get your free quote and submit your complete application in just 10 minutes now at worldly.getethos.com. One more time, that's worldly.getethos, E-T-H-O-S, dot com.
2: The news today seems really grim, and it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect. A show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering.
0: What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's
2: loved one kindly? Simply tell the border patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.
0: All right. So now we're seeing this global center collapse. Why? What's going on here?
2: So the byproduct of this system has been increased globalization, which, again, the greater interdependency of economics, greater trade, greater flow of people. And that has started to rankle people around the U.S. and Europe, Latin America, elsewhere, because that leads for the quote-unquote other to enter your country and work in your country and dilute culture, some would say.
1: Yeah, so it's it's too much oversimplification to say, you know, everything was hunky-dory and then boom, we're in the middle of this crisis now. Right. I mean, these were hard-fought battles that took place over the 70 years. Like, right now, it's easy to just look back. and hindsight, everything is more clear and say, oh, we had this great period of stability and peace and love and happiness— but we fought multiple wars during that time. We sure. had to remember that. We went through massive cultural transformations. And I think what actually happened in Europe, a lot of other countries, though not in the United States, is that the center-left parties got exactly what they wanted. They got welfare states. They got free education, um, including college education in Europe. Um, this whole idea of the quote-unquote nanny state, as many Americans think of it. Now, this was the achievement of the left in Europe. And then after that, they really haven't figured out what they're all about. Right. And so, you know, then
0: on top of all of that, going back to what Alex was saying, you know, this kind of globalization, things were going well in terms of like the economy was doing pretty well and, and the kind of rising tide lifts all boats. Healthcare outcomes and education and life expectancy were all rising and extending for everyone. And then you have this really big crisis point, which was essentially the 2008 financial crisis, this global financial crisis that strikes all around the world. It hits certain places, especially certain countries in Europe, extra hard. But all of a sudden, people are looking around going, wait a second, this this system that we had is not actually working for me. It worked for that guy over there, but it's not working for me. And then you also kind of on top of that, you have multiple wars. We have wars in the Middle East. Uh, some of them started by the United States. And you have outflows of immigrants and migrants kind of moving into Europe and moving around the world. And because of that globalization, where we had freer movement of people, more relaxed borders, especially in, in Europe and the EU, people are like, wait a second, I don't have a job. There are all these people from other countries. that are not my country. They're coming in and they're taking my jobs. And so they see this kind of system. And all of a sudden, this centrist path Doesn't look so sexy anymore. It looks like status quo and status quo is bad.
1: Well, I think paradoxically, the growth you're talking about, not just in economic growth, but also the explosion of democracies around the world, we forget that democracy was not the dominant form of governance right. for most of human existence. And then you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and the 1990s seem like, OK, it's the end of history, right? right. As uh, Francis Fukuyama once said, you know, we're going to have liberal democracies and that's it. But and then now where we are where we are, the, the high of the 1990s is gone. I think that. Has what's happened is that the crises you mentioned, the financial crisis first and foremost, but also others, have exposed the inequities, right. the global inequities and also the inequities within countries. So what we realized, and we should have known this, meaning the West, quote unquote, um, is that the West was studying the rules. So the West was sort of the the shaper of this global order, and then other countries were expected to be the takers. And, you know, many countries are not happy about in the global South, um, Russia, China, that they were sort of stripped of their ability and were just expected to eat what the West was serving up to them. And it also exposed the fact that, you know, if you just have democratic institutions, it doesn't mean that those democracies will produce democratic leaders. Right. Absolutely. And
0: I think, you know, on top of this, you have just the fact of time. We had World War II. There was this horrific view of what the right, the far right could be, of what fascism is. We had the Cold War, or we had kind of the far left, and then the collapse of the Soviet Union. But time has passed, right? Decades have passed. And a lot of people who are now, you know, the voting public don't remember in a real, like, visceral, human, like, personal sense what those times were like, right? You read it in history books, and you kind of understand it maybe intellectually, but you didn't live it. And you don't really understand what this can feel like and what it can do to to a nation, to the world, and so people don't remember these problems as vividly. So again, you have this collapse at the center, and then you have people forgetting that far left and far right can be really dangerous. So I think that kind of brings us to today, and we have two really vivid examples of this that just happened uh, in the past few days that really lays out specifically how this can play out in the world in real time.
2: So, for example, on Sunday, we had presidential elections in Brazil that led to the victory of Jair Bolsonaro, uh, a former army captain who longs for the days of Brazil's military dictatorship. He came in as a candidate. He'd always he'd been around for years and he'd always been on the fringes kind of asking for a return to this dictatorship. Right, the fringes
0: of the far right. The
2: fringes of the far right, making the case for why, like, basically you just need a military intervention to stop growing crime rates in Brazil. Brazil's security has massively dropped with high crime rates, you know, muggings, etc. And on top of that, there was, most importantly for this election, there was a the collapse of the left-leaning party, which... There's a big corruption scandal It touched previous presidents, it touched high-level officials, this thing called Operation Car Wash. We have a video of it on Vox to to go real deep. We won't go into it here. But safe to say that people got massively disillusioned with that sort of center-left, even some would say far-left party, this workers' party. And so they have Bolsonaro who's saying, I'm going to be tough on crime. And you can sort of see how this fringe political character comes into the center.
0: Right, and so, you know, like we said, he has this fascination with this military authoritarian dictatorship, and he wants to literally kill the criminals, right? He said a good criminal is a dead criminal. Uh, he's a former army captain, right? So, under the old military rules in Brazil, people were tortured and killed. But, you know, now we have this New York Times video where Bolsonaro says things like...
1: So, it
0: So what he's saying there is things will only change, unfortunately, when we have a civil war and do what the military regime failed to do, to kill 30,000 or so.
2: Cool, cool, cool.
0: This is who this guy is, right? And he's well known for not just his his fondness for military dictatorship, right, but for really racist, sexist comments.
2: Homophobic comments. Yeah,
0: yeah. anti-LGBT. He once said something to the effect of, you know, I would rather have a dead son than a gay son. And back to the military thing, in 2016, uh, he voted to impeach the then president, Dilma Rousseff, and he said that he was doing so, that he was voting to impeach her in honor of the deceased chief of secret police in Sao Paulo, who oversaw the torture of hundreds under the military rule. And it was super disturbing because Rousseff herself had literally been imprisoned and tortured under that regime. So... He's very clear on this kind of authoritarian, far-right, very—it's essentially Brazil's make Brazil great again.
2: So as unpalatable as Bolsonaro seems, right, he was clearly the alternative. The only other candidate at the sort of last part of the race was a member of that party that had been massively shaken by this corruption scandal right. and bankrupted the country had done very little to stem out crime, and so it's either kind of like the status quo guy, and by and like a stand-in really for the previous president, right? Or this guy who's at least offering something solutions, new. something new to to fix the situation. It's not like um, it's uh, there are great solutions, but they're at least. And I'm stealing an Alina line because I've interviewed her for a piece on this. It is a future vision, even if it is kind of regressive.
0: If you talk to um, our Vox colleague Jen Kirby, um, interviewed this sociologist who studies kind of the middle class and the lower classes in Brazil, and he told her this really interesting story. And I think this gets back to the point we were talking about earlier, where people, you know, history, time has passed. People today don't necessarily remember the horrific kind of period of the more radical military dictatorship. They don't remember the the reason that centrism became the popular path. And this is an uh, an older woman. She's 66 years old, and she was talking to this man, and she was basically saying, like, look, my grandma knows that time. You know, my mom knows some of that time, but I don't really know. And what's fascinating is that her grandson does actually know more about that because he studied it in school. But there was this period after the dictatorship where they didn't really talk about it, right? So there's this whole kind of class of people who don't remember— the kind of horrific early days. So when someone with new, sexy ideas comes in and says, look, we're going to shake up the status quo. Just trust me, vote for me. You may not like all my ideas, but I promise we'll drain the swamp. Basically, like that's attractive to people. And so, you know, he won. Yeah,
2: and it should be said that there was a movement against him, right? Like there was this call, Ellen Al, which not him. Um, so there, w- it's not like he won in a landslide, right. but he still won. But he had a healthy but one. But he had right. a healthy one, yeah.
0: And so that brings us to The second case, right? And this is where, Alina, you, I know, are such an expert on this area. And it's Germany. And you might not think that Brazil and Germany are connected, but they are.
2: So Angela Merkel has been the chancellor of Germany for 13 years and the head of her party even longer. She's a staunch center-right politician and the vanguard of that movement. And on Monday, she held a press conference. And in it, she explained it had been an honor to serve Germany but that she was stepping down as the head of her party and that she would not be running for further political office. Right. So
0: what's the deal here? How how is this connect to what we've been talking about? Alina...
2: Go. Right.
1: So the Brazil Germany examples are also connected in one way that you mentioned, Jen, which I think is really important. It's that this generational component. And there's been a lot of surveys of millennials, and they've been hotly debated among academics. But basically, what they show is that the new generation doesn't really see the value of democracy. Right. Um, in fact, they're pretty comfortable potentially living under military rule. Um, and this is not just true in Brazil, it's also true in Western Europe. And in places like Germany, we talk about the collapse of the center. Like, I think we need to really understand what we're talking about here. What we've seen in Germany, there have been a few regional elections recently, and the center-left and the center-right party, uh, Angela Merkel's party is the CDU, the center-right, they're having some of their worst results since the end of World War II, um, especially the center-left, the SPD, the Social Democrats. We just had elections in Germany, the regional elections, one of the richest provinces where Frankfurt is, people have flown through Frankfurt, the financial hub of Germany, very wealthy, almost complete employment, booming area. And you see both the CDU, the center-right, and the SPD, the center-left, just completely losing compared to elections five years ago. And who do you see, of course, emerging? It's the far-right AFD party alternative for Germany, and it's the Greens, um, the, the leftist party that looks a lot like a uh, Bernie Sanders-style political party. And Germany is not alone. You know, if you look at France, you know, everyone's talking about Macron and how he's been this great, you know, centrist that's broken the left-right divide. but. Macron was able to do that because the left collapsed. Right. I think the socialist candidate got like less than 6% of the vote in the first round of the French presidential elections. And this is a pattern that's repeating itself over and over and over again.
0: Right. So with Angela Merkel, right, so she's this kind of around the world, she represented kind of the last stand of like the centrist, boring technocratic centrist, right? Like, stick with me. We're going great. Let's just keep doing this thing. But she started facing a lot of challenges before these elections. This was kind of like the the icing on the cake, right? What was she facing pressure over?
2: So the biggest thing, and there were a lot, but the biggest thing is in 2015, she allowed refugees to enter Germany. A
1: lot of refugees. A a lot of refugees. About 1.2 million. Yeah,
2: right. That's an important point. And so that started to anger quite a bit of Germans. Um, In fact, there's the party that Alina mentioned, Alternative for Germany, uh, they came third in the national elections last year. Uh, As she mentioned, they're rising in these regional elections, and this party's only five years old.
0: And they're hard; hard core anti-immigrant. Like, that's that's their whole thing.
2: That's the whole platform.
0: And anti-Muslim, because most of the immigrants tend to be Muslim. Right.
2: So, they have gained power basically with a singular message, which is, refugees bad, immigrants bad, and by the way, Merkel's the one who let them in.
0: Right, exactly. And so they're, you know, the ones with these, you know, I hate to say sexy ideas, but— to the general electorate who's looking around going, okay, so I have Merkel on one side who's telling me nothing really exciting. Stay the course. Yeah, stay the course. Just keep going down this kind of boring middle road. But things aren't going well for me economically. I I see all these these immigrants coming into my country. I'm already not doing well, you know, and I don't have a job or, you know, I'm not getting a raise or whatever. And then you have this other party come in and go, look, It's Merkel. She's the problem. She's the one doing this. She's the one mismanaging the economy. She's the one letting these immigrants in. Vote for us and get Merkel out of there. In these recent elections, Alina, you know, we saw Merkel's party and her sister party and, you know, the parties that kind of form this centrist coalition that she governs with really lose big time. And it seems like she finally saw the writing on the wall.
1: Well, yes and no. Um, you know, we had to remember, like, we are talking about the collapse of the centers if it's kind of a fait accompli, like it's a done deal. Right. But the majority of Germans are still voting for the centrists. So we shouldn't overestimate, you know, how. Yes, the far right has exceeded um, all expectations, but they're still below 15% nationally, right? And, you know, the CDU, Merkel's party is still getting, you know, in the mid-30% or so, which is bad for them, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not like, you know, hair on fire type of situation yet. Um, And, you know, Merkel was challenged significantly during the 2017 federal elections where it took the German government months to even form a coalition. And that's because the SPD, her coalition government, the center-left, it was like, oh well, people hate us because they hate the CDU, and we've been linked to the CDU and this grand coalition for so long, and we've lost our identity. Right. So you're seeing now uh, within each party there being these internal challenges. Right. And Merkel is from the far right in her own party. On the center left, it's like this grassroots younger movement that you know is tired of the technocratic slogans that I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. and so. She already was in a really weak position before these regional elections. But I think now for her, I mean, this is the come-to-Jesus moment. And I think she saw what was about to happen.
0: Just to kind of bring this all back together, I think, you know, we've seen this in in our own country, right? We've seen this in America where, you know, if you look at the the 2016 elections, early on you had Bernie Sanders who was really, really popular, especially among young people. But he had, you know, radical kind of leftist ideas— And you had Donald Trump, who's more towards the far right in terms of ideas, but they both had big kind of exciting, we're going to change things up, we're going to shake up the status quo, and you saw the boring kind of -of middle-of-the-road centrists on both the left and right, from Hillary Clinton to Jeb Bush, middle-of-the-road centrists, didn't really seem to have much to offer, and the electorate wasn't really excited. They weren't ginned up over their ideas, and so— You know, I think it's part of this broader trend we're seeing around the world where, you know, centrist kind of parties and politicians, and I like what you said about identity. It seems that they've lost their identity. It's like, what do we stand for, liberal international order? Well, that phrase and those ideas don't seem to be connecting with voters in the way that maybe they used to because that's not working for everyone.
2: I interviewed Alina, again, like I said, for a piece on this issue, and I will put it in the show notes. One thing I found interesting, and I didn't have time to put it in, but effectively it was not only the parties losing their identity, but kind of people who are voting for far left, far right, they cherish identity, but like a personal identity. And so that's why the immigration challenge is so important.
1: Well, right. I think to go back to this question of why people supporting these movements, you know, to us now, it seems like we're in this crisis moment. All of a sudden, you know, populism uh, is on the rise all over the world. But you know the, the reality is that these parties didn't come out of the blue. They were sort of waiting in the wings for their moment, and their moment comes when the center can no longer hold. And so now they're mobilizing support on the fringes, both left and right. Um, but they've been there. You know, in Europe, uh, some of these parties have existed since the 1970s, so they're not you know, these new kids on the block. Uh, they have is, but most of them are not. And I think what's interesting is how little people's economic situation. Has affected the rise of the right. So you were saying earlier, Jen. You know, what about these people? You know, who may be looking around. I don't have a job. My neighbor doesn't have a job. I have this immigrant. Well, actually, if you look at Germany, look at Austria, that has a far right party in government right now. If you look at Italy; it's actually recovering from recession. They have a far right government in power. Hung. It can go on and on, right? Mm-hmm. The reality is that economic growth has been amazing. Right. And they're almost full employment in Hesse, which we mentioned earlier in Germany, they had these local elections recently. And in many ways, people don't even have immigrants in their own communities. Right. They just hear about it. So what we're seeing is that this is really not about the economy per se. It's about identity. Right. It's about wanting to hold on, I think, to a sense of community that you feel like is getting taken away from you by the globalist elites or EU bureaucrats or the centrists or whoever you want to call it. And that is the common thread I think we're seeing in the United States, in Europe, and and even in Brazil. There's a great example, uh, just to kind of close here, in that interview
0: that I was talking about with our colleague Jen Kirby, the the sociologist uh, in Brazil, was talking to that, that older woman, and it was a great moment she pulls out her phone and shows him this video on her WhatsApp. And it's some video of a woman who is protesting and takes her top off in the street. And the woman looks at him and says, look, this is what our country is going to become if we keep voting for these people. We need to support Jair Bolsonaro because he will end this. It's not even clear if what party she was affiliated with, the woman who's taking her top off, right? But it's it's this kind of sense of, like, the world is going to hell. My society is going to hell you know, everything I know, my family, everything, values are collapsing. And then you have these shiny new politicians who point directly to that and go, yes, see, you're right. That thing you're feeling, I will fix that. And that's why we have this kind of super resurgence in in kind of extremist parties.
2: Yeah, it's not going away anytime soon.
0: And I think we'll leave it there. Thank you again, Alina, uh, Dr. Alina Polyakova, for being with us today. Thank you. You Yay. can check her out on Twitter. It's at... A. Polyakova, And we'll have it in the show notes so you can spell it. Uh, (laughs) Not you. Alina probably knows how to spell her own name. But all of you listeners, uh, she also has a report coming out on this in January, so make sure to keep an eye out for that. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. Uh, I want to thank you, Alex Ward. Sure. I want to thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you next week.